Let me read those verses again. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he, that is Christ, had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are tempted. These verses bring us to the heart of the Christian faith. If you wonder what Christianity is about, these verses tell you, they tell you the, the, the essence of the Christian faith as they focus our attention on Christ's work of salvation. They tell us why Christ came, what he came to do. And as we look at them, I hope you will see that. I hope you'll understand more, more clearly, more about why Christ came and the work that he did to save his people. So these are essential verses. They introduce many topics that the writer of this letter is going to deal with more fully as he goes on in in, in later chapters, but we get a kind of foretaste, a summary of them here. We can divide uh, these verses up and, and look at them under three headings, all to do with this matter of why Christ became man. You see in verse 17 those crucial words in all things he had to be made like his brethren he became human up in verse 14 you see he says inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood he himself that's christ likewise shared in in the same it means in in flesh and blood just as we do in other words he shared our nature he became truly human christians in the first few centuries of the gospel age had to spend a lot of time and energy defending that great doctrine that Christ really did become truly human. There were lots of people around who believed that Jesus had lived, um, but they said he wasn't truly fully human in the sense that we are. They said that's not possible. He's God. Um, He couldn't be truly human as well. And, and the way they tried to understand it and teach it um, fell short of the idea that Christ was fully human. And as I say, the Christians, the church at that time, had to put a lot of energy into defending and demonstrating from Scripture, from verses like this, that yes, Jesus indeed was and is truly human in every sense. He didn't sin. The writer to the Hebrews makes that clear later on. He didn't sin, but... In every sense, he is and was truly human from the moment that he took to himself a human nature, as well as being fully God. So Christ became man for us. That's the first point, that he became man for us, for his people. Look at verses 16 and 17. Indeed, it does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. Now, follow the, the train of thought here. I know it's hot and it's the evening and so on. Our minds are not perhaps as alert as they sometimes are. But uh, follow the train of thought. 
he says in verse 16, he didn't come to help angels. He'd been, the, the writer's been talking a great deal about angels. If you know the letter to the Hebrews, you know the first couple of chapters. There's a great deal about angels and how Christ is much greater than the angels. Christ is superior to the angels in so many ways. He deals with that in chapter 1 and, and in chapter 2 to some extent. And so he's kind of finishing off that subject here in chapter 2 as he gets to the end of the chapter. And he says, Christ didn't come, he didn't become a man to help angels. He came uh, to help humans. He came to save sinners. Uh, angels, he says, are ministering spirits at the end of chapter 1. They're, they're all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. They they serve God's people. Angels serve God's people. Christ didn't come to help them. He comes to help us humans. And, and you see how he puts it at the end of verse 16. He doesn't give aid to angels, but he does give aid to, and notice how he puts it, the seed of Abraham. The seed of Abraham. You think, well, why does he put it like that? Why not say human beings generally? Why not say the sons of Adam, for example? He makes it narrower, doesn't he? More restricted than that. He says he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Who are these seed or offspring, descendants of Abraham? Well, in New Testament terms, they are those who believe in Christ, Jew and Gentile. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, Paul says, those of faith are sons of Abraham, those who have faith in Christ, in other words, whether they were Old Testament believers or New Testament believers, it's, it's, it's those who are the offspring, the descendants of Abraham, spiritually speaking. That's who he's talking about. So he's saying Christ, when he became man, when he came to earth, we sang about that earlier, didn't we? When he left the glory of heaven and came to earth, he didn't come to help angels, he came to help those who would trust in him for salvation, the seed of Abraham. Now that's telling us, isn't it, something very important that we need to understand. Christ's coming into this world has benefits for everybody in some sense. Everybody in the world, in a sense, benefits from Christ's incarnation in various different ways. But this text is telling us, and, and, and other parts of Scripture confirm this, that he particularly had in mind his own people when he came into this world. All those who would, whether under the Old Testament or the New Testament, all those who would trust in him in a saving way, would put their faith in Christ for salvation. His people whom he came into this world to save from their sins. That's what Matthew tells us at the beginning of his gospel. You'll remember it from, from Christmas readings, I'm sure. He, 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 the angel said that he was to be called Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. You see, it's quite specific. He would save his people from their sins. Not every individual. We know, don't we, that not everybody, sadly, we know that not, not, not everybody in the world will be saved. There will be those, tragically, who will be in hell for eternity. Christ came, says Matthew, to save his people from their sins. In John chapter 17, verse 6, Jesus prays that prayer, that wonderful prayer uh, to his heavenly Father. 
and he speaks about those whom the Father had given to him for him to come into this world to, to redeem by his death and by his resurrection. That's a vital truth, isn't it? It's plainly taught, I think, in Scripture, but sadly often ignored, that Christ had this very specific purpose when he came into the world. He had a specific task, if you like, a commission to perform when he took a human nature as he did. And that purpose was to save his people, to save, as the Bible sometimes puts it, to save the elect, those chosen by God since before the earth began to be his. And let's be very clear, they were chosen not for any good in, in them, not for any good in us at all, but simply because of the Father's good purposes, which we cannot fathom. It's beyond us to understand his purposes. But we know it's nothing to do with any merit, any worth, any value on our part. It's not that the elect are somehow better than others. Far from it. I suspect, actually, that the elect are worse than others. And that's maybe why God chose to save us. At any rate, we are all sinners. And we all deserve nothing but God's punishment in hell. And yet, he has chosen many millions uh, to be saved and redeemed through the death of his son as he came into this world to take to himself human nature. And so Christ's mission is very clear. The reason why he came is very clear and that should give us great confidence. If your trust and faith is in Christ, this should help to strengthen your faith to see that Christ came with this very specific purpose to save you to save all whose trust is in Christ. And, and if you're not a believer, don't think that this somehow excludes you because the call of the gospel comes to you as well. The call is to come and to put your trust in Jesus Christ, not to ask whether you're one of the elect or not. That's not, that's not the question to ask. The question is simply this. Are you a sinner? Answer yes. The Bible tells you that you are. Christ died for sinners. The Bible tells us that. Christ calls you, a sinner, to come to him and put your trust in him. Again, the Bible's very clear about that. And that's what we are to do. And then when we have come, when you have come and you put your trust in Christ and you know that you're his, well, then you have this tremendous assurance, this great sense that God sent Jesus into this world to die specifically for you and for millions of others for whom he came to give his life. He doesn't give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. And this, this phrase, it's translated here in, in this version as give aid to. It's a little bit weak, I think, really, as a translation, but it's a difficult phrase to translate. The idea is to seize hold of somebody, to, to deliver them, to rescue them. Um, it's the same word. It's used up in, over in chapter 8, if you want to turn across to chapter 8, verse 9. Um, it's quoting here from Jeremiah, but the same word is used. He says in chapter 8, verse 9, uh, this is God speaking, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, 
in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. That's the idea here of, of taking somebody by the hand. Again, that, that sounds, you know, quite gentle, but, you know, God had to exercise great power, didn't he, to bring his people out of Egypt and to rescue them from slavery in the land of Egypt. Great power to deliver them. He took them by the hand and, and led them out of the land of Egypt. That's the idea here. Somebody coming to um, take you by the hand and, 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 and to rescue you, to deliver you with, with an exercise of great power. So, same idea in the passage I read from Isaiah chapter 41 in verses 8 to 10, uh, which interestingly has this same idea about the, the seed of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham are mentioned in verse 8. And it goes on, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions. Ultimately, this is speaking of Christ, but, but it's got also within it the idea of God's people being saved and delivered and called by God from all over the place to himself to save them and to deliver them. So that's the idea here in verse 16. Christ came to save us. He came to deliver us. He came to take us by the hand in our sin, in our all our calamity and to deliver us to take us out and to bring us to himself as he helps us and how does he do this well it says doesn't it verse 17 he had to be made like us made like his brethren his brothers what a wonderful term that is isn't it he's not ashamed to call us his brothers as he says up in verse 11 if you're christ's then jesus is not afraid to call you his brother and he had to be made like us in all respects it says in all things he became one of us he became truly human with all our weaknesses except for sin with our frailty he took a human body flesh and bones which grew tired which needed food and drink regularly just as we do which felt pain as we do he had a human mind which had to learn things. Jesus, as a baby, had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to speak. He had a human mind which did not know everything. He had human emotions, human feelings. He could love and make friends and become angry and feel compassion and know the pain of being deserted and experience emotional turmoil and you read the gospel accounts and you see that don't you see that very clearly he's human he's like us in every respect except for sin we see his human vulnerability particularly in the sufferings of his final days on earth the agony the emotional turmoil in gethsemane the physical and the mental torture of the beatings that he endured the insults, the reproaches, those terrible final hours on the cross. Think, think what that meant for the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, who is God himself. How far he came, down from the glory of heaven to our world, down from the place, as it were, where he was worshipped eternally by the angels in glory, 
to the fallenness of our world, the ordinariness of our world, from the holiness and the purity of heaven to the darkness and sinfulness of this earth, from the company of the purest, purest beings that ever existed to live with men and women who were far from God, who had little or no faith in him, and who seemed incapable of grasping elementary spiritual truth. He came. Jesus came. He didn't have to. There was no eternal obligation, or as it were, inherently upon him to do this. He came voluntarily. He came out of love and grace and mercy for us. And he came to submit himself to all the sufferings of his life that we read about in the Gospels and finally to submit himself to death itself. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. And this is what it meant, didn't it, for him to do that. And again, we read about it in the Gospels. So that's, that's the first thing that we learn from these verses. Christ became man for us, his people. But what did he achieve through doing that? What precisely did he, did he achieve, uh, accomplish? What did he do? Verse 17. Second half of verse 17 tells us that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He became human. He took on our humanity in order, says the writer, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Now, as I said, that, that theme is taken up later on in the letter and developed. But the principle is stated here, isn't it? A merciful and faithful high priest. Now, if you know the Old Testament at all, you know that it's full of, high, full of priests. What do the priests do in the Old Testament? Well, their essential task, their central the focus of their activity as a priest is to mediate between God and man, to offer sacrifices to God on behalf of his people because of their sins. That's what priests do. They do other things. They pray for the people. They teach. They make thank offerings. There are other duties that were laid on them by Moses in the law, but their central function is to offer sacrifice <coughs> for sins. That's what we read in the Old Testament. And they had to do that every day. Day after day after day without fail. One sacrifice was not enough. A thousand sacrifices were not enough. A century's worth of sacrifices was not enough. Every day, day after day, without fail, the priests had to sacrifice because their sacrifices could never satisfy for sin, not in full now if you imagine yourself now as an Israelite in, in the Old Testament, a believing Israelite, you trusted in the Lord for salvation and you saw all this going on in the temple in Jerusalem, these daily sacrifices these priests offering their sacrifices day after day and it never seemed to be finished it never seemed to be complete. And you thought about that. And you, 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 you made it a matter of meditation and prayer. And you, 
You, you looked at God's word as far as you had it in the Old Testament. What would you think? What would you think? Here is God, he's kind, he's good, he's compassionate, he's been gracious to you, and yet these sacrifices are going on day after day, never seem to be finished. You'd surely think, as I think many did, that this, these sacrifices, they pointed to something far better. These priests in the temple, serving God in this way, and serving God their whole lives and then dying, and there'd be more priests who would be appointed, and they'd come along, and the whole thing just carrying on, and you would think to yourself, surely there is something better to come. Surely there's a day coming when all of this will be completed. All these sacrifices somehow would come to an end, and the final sacrifice for sin would be made once and for all. And you'd search the scriptures and you'd read passages like Isaiah 53 and, and, and Genesis 3. And you would see, well, yes, God seems to have promised this. He seems to have promised that he would send somebody, the Messiah, the Christ, who would, one way or another, bring this whole thing to an end and offer the final sacrifice. And this verse, and many others like it, teach us that indeed that is precisely what Jesus came to do, to offer that final sacrifice, to be our merciful and faithful high priest, the priest to end all priests, if you like. That's why we, we don't believe in priests except for the priesthood of every believer. The New Testament tells us that we are all priests if we trust in Christ now. Because we have this one great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't need to go to any other priest uh, to make confession or to atone on our behalf for sin or to offer a sacrifice on our behalf. That's all been done. It's been done by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's merciful, you see. He's a merciful high priest. He is full of mercy to sinners like us. Do you feel your need of mercy? You sense that you're a sinner and you need mercy from God. You can't earn your own way out of your sin. You know that. What you need is God's mercy, to throw yourself on his mercy. Christ is the merciful high priest. He doesn't come in judgment. He doesn't come to condemn for your sins. But he comes in mercy because of your sins to have pity on you and to call you to himself to know the forgiveness of those sins. He's merciful. And it says he's faithful. He's faithful because this is what God has promised in his word, as we've just seen in the Old Testament, time and again. Promising a saviour, promising a messiah, promising a high priest who would make the ultimate sacrifice for sin. And he has done that. He's faithful. Faithful to his promises. Christ has come, a merciful and faithful high priest. So let us put our trust in him. If he is merciful, if he is faithful, if he keeps his word, if he keeps his promises, we've got no reason not to trust in Jesus Christ, who keeps his promises. What does this priest do? He makes propitiation, it says at the end of verse 17. Makes propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is a long word which means very simply turning away the wrath of God. If you're a sinner, as we all are, God is angry with our sins. God is holy. God is righteous. God can't stand sin. He hates it. And, and he will punish it. And his wrath 
is activated, as it were, against sin. Christ came as our high priest to make propitiation, to turn away God's wrath from us, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, of all his people. Jesus had no sin of his own. Chapter 4, verse 15 tells us that. Yet God the Father poured out his wrath, this wrath against the sin of his people was poured out on Christ. Just think about that. In a sense, it doesn't make sense, does it? Christ was entirely righteous. There was nothing in the Lord Jesus to cause the Father to be wrathful with him. Jesus had obeyed his Father's will in everything. From the moment he came into this world, even as a baby, as a young child, as a teenager, as a young adult, he was perfectly obedient in every way to his heavenly Father. He never took God's name in vain. He never worshipped any other than the true and living God. He always kept the Sabbath truly holy. He showed his mother and Joseph proper respect all his life. He never was guilty of theft or lust or murder or deceit or covetousness. He never broke any of God's commands, not in the slightest bits. He never had any thought or desire to break those commands. There was nothing in him ever, in his actions, in his words, in his mind or in his heart, that could justly be reproached or rebuked. He was utterly, entirely righteous in every way. Yet God poured out on him his wrath in full force on the cross, particularly three hours of darkness. Such was the horror of what the Lord Jesus Christ had to endure. It's as if not even the Son could bear to witness the sufferings of the Son of Man. So he gave up his life. And this verse tells us he did that for the sins of the people. In other words, the sins of God's people. Again, not for every individual, but for all who trust in his name. If your faith is in him, in Christ for salvation, then the wrath of God has been exhausted on Jesus Christ instead of on you. And there is none left for you. There is no, not an ounce, as it were, of the wrath of God left to be poured out or suffered by you if your faith is in Christ. Christ has suffered it all. Every last particle of the wrath and condemnation of God for your sins has been borne already by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the apostle could say in Romans chapter 8 verse 1, there is now no condemnation. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about God's condemnation, his wrath, his judgment against your sin. It's all gone. There is none. For you if your faith is truly in Christ. And when your conscience or Satan himself reminds you of your sin, remember this. We, we sang that hymn, didn't we? Before the throne of God above, I have a true, a perfect plea. What is that plea? What is it that we say when our conscience accuses us of sin? Well, we can say, yes, I am a sinner. Yes, everything you say about me is true and worse. But Christ has borne the penalty for it all. He suffered everything on my behalf. 
all of God's wrath, all of God's judgment against my sin, every sin, has been paid because Christ came to be a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for my sins. If your faith is in Christ, you can say that, for you're one of his people. That's why he became man. That's why he came to our world, our world to bear the sins of his people. So do you know this? Is your faith in Christ? The good news is this, that Christ calls you to come to him, to trust in him. If you don't trust him now, come to him now in your heart and entrust yourself to him, turning your back on your sins, trusting him for eternal life. He will receive you if you come to him in faith. That is why he came. So he was made like us for us, for his people. He was made like us. He became man to atone for our sins. And finally, thirdly, verse 18, he became man to help us in our trials. As those who are his, if you belong to him, if your faith is in him, he saved you. He also helps you in your trials, in life, in this world. Because he has been through them as well. Verse 18, in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are tempted. That's the point that the author is making. Christ suffered being tempted. That word tempted doesn't just mean tempted to sin. It's a word that means tried as well. It's speaking of all the trials of this life, all the troubles that might come upon you. It might be temptation to sin. It might be suffering of various kinds, trials, anxiety, uh, doubts, bereavement, whatever it may be, whatever the trials that come upon us. Uh, the verse is telling us Jesus has suffered similar things and is able then to help you. You read the Gospels, you see Christ's temptations in the wilderness, don't you? The devil tried to get him to sin in various different ways. Uh, to give in to selfish desires, uh, to give in to pride, or to give in to covetousness, even to worship the devil himself. And Christ endured it all and came through without sin. He's been tempted in that sense, tempted to sin, as we are. So he's able to help you when you're tempted to sin, if you are his. Jesus, we see in the Gospels, endured the grief of bereavement. He knew what it felt like to lose somebody he loved to death. He wept at Lazarus' tomb, his friend. He knew, he knows what bereavement is. He's able to help you when you suffer bereavement, when you lose somebody you love. He's able to help you. He knows what that is like. Jesus experienced the pain of friends deserting him at his hour of greatest need when he most needed friends to support him in those last hours of his life on earth when everything was against him his friends deserted him as well think what pain that caused him he knows that pain maybe you've got friends who've deserted you in your hour of need just when you could have done with somebody to give you a comforting word put an arm around your shoulder they weren't there they, they, they deserted you Jesus knows what that is he knew what it was to have powerful people in society oppose him. 
and plot to put him to death. Can you imagine that? The most powerful people in your circle, in your life, plotting to do away with you. Jesus knows what that is like. He knows what it's like to be falsely accused of terrible things that he'd never even contemplated, let alone actually done. He knew what it was like to be hungry, to be thirsty, to be very weary, to be exhausted, to suffer intense physical pain and torture. He even knew what it was, as a believer, to lose the sense of God's presence with him and to lose the comfort of knowing his heavenly Father's love as he died on the cross. He suffered all these trials. He himself has suffered, being tried, being tempted, just as we do. He knows it all. And so he's able to help you. He's able to help us in all our trials and temptation. So whatever it is that we may be going through at any particular time in our lives, look to Christ, look to him for help. That There's no situation in which you can be brought in this life that is beyond the knowledge and experience of the Lord Jesus Christ to help you. None. People go through the most awful experiences, don't they, in this life sometimes. The most terrible suffering. But there is nothing, however bad it may be, however awful, there is nothing where we can't turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and find in him all the help that we need for him to take us through it and to come out the other end trusting still in him. He knows what it's like. He feels for you. A little later in the letter, the, 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 the author talks about his compassion Uh, He says in chapter 4, verse 16, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need, because he sympathizes with us. Chapter 4, verse 15, in our weakness, because he was in all points tempted and tried as we are yet without sin. He's been made like us. He became one of us, like his brethren, to atone for our sin to deal with every last bit of our sin, to take away that problem, as it were, and deal with it and accomplish it entirely, make the final sacrifice for sin, and to help us in all our trials and sufferings in this life. What more do we need in this world and for eternity? Look to Christ. Put your trust in him. And trust in him all your life long, every day, until he takes you to be with him forever in glory.